you think you know what we're going to talk about. And welcome back to Three Fates Decide. It just sounds more dramatic that way. All right. So this week we are going to be talking about... But just when you least expect it, we changed the game. One Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I mean, we always celebrated Easter. You're part of the Half-Blood Prince. So we're going to do another free talk, freestyle thing. No planned discussion. At the end of the day, only one thing matters. We decide. We're going to hit the, the main highlights. That is the thing what we were saying back in that episode. Quick recap. Three Fates Decide podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Three Fates Decide. My name is Liz, and you are getting another solo episode from me. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing House of the Dragon Season 1. Before I begin, I want to put a spoiler alert warning. As you would presumably guess, I'm going to be discussing the entire season one. So if you have not watched all of the episodes by the time you are listening to this episode, then you will want to stop right here because I am obviously going to be spoiling things that happen in the season. As somebody who is actually a book reader, I am very much aware what happens down the road in The Dance of the Dragons, which is essentially what House of the Dragon is about. So I will promise you that I will not spoil future events in this episode. But hey, you have been given a fair warning that I'm going to be talking about quite a few things that happen in the season. So you can't come after me after listening to this episode and start complaining that you didn't watch everything yet. But anyway, enough of that. Let me begin. So to start off with, I am going to talk a little bit about just overall what I thought of the season, and then I'm going to get into a little more specifics about each of the episodes. So overall, I kind of felt that in some ways, House of the Dragon turned out to be better than even Game of Thrones in some respects. And I could see there's some ways that they could probably improve the show. But overall, I thought this was actually a very good adaptation, especially since the source material is not that conventional. So for people who are sort of aware, but not really aware, Game of Thrones was primarily adapted from the five novels that George R.R. R. Martin published as part of his magnum opus, The Song of Ice and Fire saga. House of the Dragon, however, is basically an adaptation of a book he published back in 2018, or at least that's the primary source. There's also a little bit of references to other material that he wrote as part of this particular universe, but primarily the source material is from his book, Fire and Blood. Now, for those of you who have not read Fire and Blood, Fire and Blood is a little different from A Song of Ice and Fire because Fire and Blood is not written as a conventional novel. It's basically a fictional history book. As I've actually told quite a few people that I know who are familiar with House of the Dragon but have not read any of the source material, the best analogy to explain what fire and blood is is that if you were to read, say, 
a history book about the British royal family. That is kind of what you're getting when you're getting Fire and Blood. It's basically a history of House Targaryen, starting with Aegon the Conqueror, what led up to his conquest of Westeros, and then the very end of what George R. R. Martin has labeled as Volume 1 of Fire and Blood. It ends with what this current TV show is about, which is The Dance of the Dragons. So now that you get that context, overall, I thought it was a fairly good adaptation of the source material. And I actually appreciated some of the interesting changes they made because, again, since Fire and Blood is meant to be a history textbook, a history treatise, if you will, there are things that are written in the book that you reasonably could change in an adaptation for this TV show because... If you are someone like me who has an interest in history and has read history books of all sorts before, you would be aware that, first off, authors may have certain biases when they write about certain individuals, certain events, what have you. But even when you're dealing with an author who is trying to be objective, what tends to happen at times is that you have to do a lot of research to write your book. And some of the sources they may be using themselves could have certain biases in there. So the author may have to make some disclaimers of a sort and admit that when they're using, say, the letters or recollections of a person who was living at that time that this particular historical book is about, that source themselves may have certain biases and opinions coloring their recollections of what was going on at that particular time you're talking about. So in that sense, when George R. R. Martin wrote Fire and Blood, he's writing from that mentality, that mindset, which I think is a really brilliant move on his point because it gives more authenticity to this fictional historical treatise that he's writing in Fire and Blood. So I will get into a little bit more detail about some of these interesting decisions that they made. And I am definitely looking forward to what they will do with the rest of the dance. Because again, I'm not going to spoil you what's going to happen. But I'm just going to tell you right now that when I talk to other fans of the show who I know personally outside of the podcast... I describe what's about to happen as a proverbial 15-car pileup on the highway, horrendous car crash, disaster, mess, headache, and, well, in this case, a lot of heartache. But then again, if you are already familiar with Game of Thrones, you should have already expected that out of House of the Dragon. Now that I got some of the generalities out of the way, I guess I'll briefly talk about some of the casting. I have to say the casting overall was very good. I'm not going to lie. I did have some skepticism in the beginning, mainly because the way I sort of imagined the Targaryens especially... I guess it is slightly colored by the fact that you had a very lovely actress, Amelia Clark, playing Daenerys in Game of Thrones. And even Harry Lloyd, who played her brother Viserys, 
He's not a bad looking guy either. And I'm not going to be so superficial and say, oh, I don't think they're attractive. But I'm just going to say is that from an aesthetic perspective, if you are going off of Amelia Clark as an example of what Targaryens look like, then you would understandably feel slightly disappointed by some of the casting for the Targaryen characters in House of the Dragon because you would probably be expecting like super attractive A-lister movie star model types to play the characters. But I personally feel like once you actually start watching the show and you see the actors in the roles, you do not think about the more superficial aesthetic aspect of the characters. You're going to start focusing on what they say, what they do, etc. Now, I have to say, there's quite a few actors that I could talk about, but I don't want to make this into a two-hour episode. So I'm just going to stick with a few characters and a few actors that I particularly liked. And some of the things I'm going to say may be slight previews of a sort of what I'm going to be saying when I discuss each individual episode a bit more. But I'm just going to start with Patty Considine, who plays King Viserys. You know, I thought he did really well as Viserys. He actually, in some ways, made the character more likable than in the book because you definitely get the impression that Viserys is a king who doesn't really want to be king, but he accepts the responsibility involved, even though at various points in time, you kind of get the sense that he doesn't honestly want to do this, but it is what it is. And I will say that episode eight, Lord of the Tides, was quite the episode. It really showcased what Viserys was really about. And it was also one of the most moving episodes of the entire season. I would highlight episode eight in particular as a very high ranking episode if you were to ask me to rank which episodes I think were the best in the first season. And I can honestly picture that even after three, maybe four seasons to cover the dance, this episode number eight is going to still be maybe not in the number one spot, but it definitely would be in the top 10 best episodes of the entire series. But anyway, um, and of course, next, I'm going to talk about Mr. Matt Smith, who plays Damon Targaryen, who George R. R. Martin himself has said is probably his favorite character out of all the characters he created for his Westeros, which really says a lot. Overall, I really liked Matt's portrayal because he really gives this very complex, mysterious character a lot more humanity to him. Because when you read about Damon, when you read about especially other people's opinions of Damon, you get very anti-hero, bad boy image. And to some degree, that is somewhat accurate of the character. And yet you still see there's a lot more to this character. And a big chunk of it is because of Matt Smith's acting, honestly, as well as the writing. But you definitely feel like a lot of it is because of Matt's work. And I enjoyed it very much. I mean, he definitely captures some of the things that the narrative in the written sources do not necessarily give you, which is that he's a very fiercely loyal guy to his family. 
And you definitely get the sense that he will do whatever it takes to defend his family. And in a way, it does feel kind of sad, which again, I will get more into it in episode eight, but you do get the feeling that it's kind of a shame that you didn't get more of the Viserys Damon relationship in the show, which I think is one of those nitpicky negatives I have about the show. You just don't capture that. But then again, to be fair, for a TV show, like the way House of the Dragon has been written, it's very difficult to capture that. The only way you would really explore that is you would have to explore it through the medium of the novel. And of course, one of the most important characters in this particular story is Rhaenyra, the realm's delight herself. I have to say, they did a pretty good job with the casting in this as well. And I particularly appreciate the fact that they had two different actresses playing the character. In the first half of the season, you had young slash teenage Rhaenyra, who was played by Millie Alcock. And then they had Emma Darcy play adult Rhaenyra in the second half of the season. And I have to say, very spot on casting because these two look similar enough to each other that you could honestly believe that one actress is playing the teenage version of this character and then the other actress is playing her as a mature woman. I enjoyed Rhaenyra very much in the series. She's one of those characters where there's a lot of expectation put on her and at the same time there's a lot of burden placed on her because in some ways like they don't genuinely expect her to become queen even though people have declared and agree that she is supposed to be queen but again we'll get into that when I discuss the individual episodes. There's a lot of potential for her I'll just say that. And I'm not going to get any further than that because that's going to lead to spoilers that some of you people who are not readers don't want to know. So I'll leave it at that. I will also say that similar to the Rhaenyra character, we also had Alicent Hightower, who was portrayed by two different actresses for similar reasons. Again, you had a teenage Allison played by Emily Carey, and then you had Olivia Cook, who plays the same character as an adult. And again, spot on casting because, again, these two honestly have enough resemblance to each other that you could believe that they are the same person. So, again, very great. And I think Alicent does appear to be kind of like what I expected her to be. Although the one thing that I noticed that's a difference from the book is that you got a sense that she's not quite as ambitious ambitious as she appeared to be in fire and blood but then again this is one of those details that you could chalk off as being you know a narrative difference between fire and blood and the show where people who describe Alicent in fire and blood they have certain viewpoints that they're basing their descriptions of Alicent on And yet that may not be really accurate because, again, they have their own biases, their own opinions. They may inherently like her or dislike her, favor her or, you know, don't favor her. It's the same thing with Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra is portrayed as a certain way in the books as well. And again, how she appears in the show could be argued is supposed to be a more balanced, more realistic, if you will, portrayal of the character and less in-universe bias one way or the other towards her. 
So continuing with the cast, another notable casting thing I want to talk about is Otto Hightower by one of Britain's very talented actors, Reese Ivins. And I have to say, he did a great job with making me really hate Otto Hightower. Now, as somebody who read Fire and Blood, I went into the show already hating on this character. Now, there are just some characters where if you're like me and you read the source material, you may walk away from the books liking or disliking the character. And then maybe the adaptation may make you start softening or shifting your opinion on that character to some degree. But in the case of Otto Hightower, I went in hating on him and I still, at the end of the season, I still hate on this character. So he did a very good job portraying this character that I just, I have never liked. I sometimes describe him as this weird blend of Tywin and Littlefinger, although that's not the most accurate description, but... He does possess certain characteristics that most definitely remind me of both of those characters from Game of Thrones because he is a ruthless patriarch of his family and very ambitious man that he is pushing for his grandson to be the king, which is, of course, very similar to uh, Tywin Lannister. And he's very underhanded and scheming and worming his way into making things happen, which is very similar to Peter Baelish. The only thing is, is that he actually lacks the kind of resources that both of those characters possess. I mean, Tywin Lannister is the head of House Lannister. He has the money. He has the army. He has the reputation that people fear. And you know that he has the means to get what he wants. And Littlefinger is devious and scheming, and in his own way, he does have the resources to get what he wants as well. And you'll see how, for Otto Hightower, he has those ambitions, but there's still some degree of inability to fully do what he wants in comparison to especially Tywin Lannister because he is not really in quite the position of power to bulldoze his way into getting what he wants. But it's going to be very interesting for those of you not familiar with Fire and Blood to see what happens to this character and his ambitions. Rainey's Targaryen. I think she's a very interesting character and I am looking forward to see what happens to her in the next season because she is quite the force to be reckoned with because you start to see what could have been. She could have been the queen instead of Viserys and you get the impression that she is definitely the kind of character where if she had been the one in charge, she would have been a more effective leader in a lot of ways because she knows what she wants. She has a strong will and there wouldn't be as many people trying to manipulate her because she is very intelligent and knows perfectly well what is going on. She's not overly idealistic and not naive enough to believe in things being a certain way just because she wants it to be that way and not accept the reality, which unfortunately is what Viserys at various points in time has a tendency to do. Corliss Velaryon. Now, Steve Toussaint, I have to say, did a very good job playing the ambitious Lord of Driftmark. And he was a very ambitious man, and he was a very adventurous man, and he did have a bit of a temper as well. 
So overall, I thought the casting was very good. I do think it is very unfortunate there was so much controversy about casting him as Lord Valarian because basically it's because of race, because the Valarians are just like the Targaryens of Valyrian family. And admittedly, in a lot of the text source material, the Valarians are described as not that different from the Targaryens in terms of like they have silver, blonde, white colored hair and they are fair skinned, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, people were complaining about like, why are you casting a black actor to play the character? I mean, I get why there is this criticism, but at the same time, I kind of feel like it's also not fair either because he did a great job portraying the character. I mean, he did the job very well. It's just he may not visually look like what you expect. He's just not what you may have expected Lord Valarian to look like, but I thought he did a very good job acting the role. And to be frank, I had a suspicion that the choice of casting a black actor to play Lord Valarian and other black and brown actors portraying other members of House Valarian was intentional and it is related to something I'm going to bring up in the episode's discussion. So keep that in mind. Fabian Frankel as Kristen Cole. Now, in a way, I liked and I disliked his casting, and my dislike of his casting is a very superficial reason. But I have to say, overall, I thought he did a very good job playing Kristen Cole, and I look forward to seeing him in the next season. I guess my one negative against him is the fact that, like, he is just so good looking. I and I'm not above saying this. After all, I am a woman, and I do think there are very attractive men, and he is one of them. And it frustrated me to realize who he is and what he looks like, because at the time when they announced the casting, you know, he doesn't have a ton of acting credits to begin with. And this is literally the first time I've ever seen him in anything, because most of his modest acting credits are in TV shows that are available in the UK, but not shows that an American like me would have seen before. So I wasn't really familiar with him. But once the pictures started coming out of like all the actors in costume on set, et cetera, et cetera, I was like, God damn it. Why did you have to cast such an attractive actor to play a character that I hate so much. I hate Kristen Cole almost on the same level I hate Otto Hightower. And to make matters worse, the beginning half of the season, they made Kristen pretty likable in my opinion. And then halfway through the season, that's when you finally see what it is that made me hate on this character so much when I was reading Fire and Blood. But again, I'll get to that into a little more detail later. Very good casting overall. Superficial reason why I was a little frustrated about it, but enough said. One other character I will talk about here, interestingly enough, is actually Ewan Mitchell as Aemon Targaryen. I think out of all the characters that got cast as the youngest generation of characters that are supposed to be involved in Dance of the Dragons, he has to be one of the best casting choices out of the bunch. And it's for two main reasons. Number one, he definitely captures a lot of the things about Aemon Targaryen that you got in Fire and Blood. 
And when I looked up Ewan's uh, filmography, I am not too surprised he has quite a few acting credits to his name. So he's had plenty of experience playing different characters. So I shouldn't be too surprised that he could do a good job playing this character. The other thing that made his casting so good is the fact that, physically speaking, he has enough of a resemblance to Matt Smith where you can honestly picture him as being Damon's nephew, okay? But on top of that, Damon and Eamon, aside from having somewhat similar sounding names, they are in a lot of ways similar yet different from each other. And the fact that they do have some resemblance to each other just emphasizes the symbolism of how their physical similarities are pretty well matched with their personalities having many commonalities with each other and that's going to make things that will happen probably in season two maybe in season three but probably in season two very interesting indeed and that's all I'm going to say about that so that's enough for the discussion of the cast I'm just going to go over as briefly as I can each of the 10 episodes I'm not going to talk about like what happens exactly in the episodes because listen, you guys presumably have watched the episodes. So I'm not going to like summarize everything, but I'm just going to bring up maybe a couple of interesting things worth noting, at least to me. So the first episode was the heirs of the dragon, which is how the whole thing got started. I thought it was really interesting decision when they went cutting back and forth between the tourney and Emma's labor because as she herself said earlier in the same episode, she basically explained to Rhaenyra that the childbirth bed is our battlefield. And in many ways, what she says is very much true, both within the context of Westeros, but also in real life. Throughout the thousands of years that humans have existed, in so many ways, childbirth is a battle because at times you don't know when you go into labor many cisgender women know this, women who've had children, is that there is always a possibility that things are not going to go well when you have this kid. And so many things could happen along the way from conception all the way to you pushing this baby out of you. And even after you push the baby out of you, there's always complications that could happen afterwards. And I think that It was very interesting, some of the reactions to this episode when it first aired, is that it became kind of controversial that this became even a topic and like, oh, it's so gruesome and why are they showing all this? And the funny thing is that quite a bit of that criticism happened to come from men in the audience. A lot of the response from female viewers seems to be like, what is the big deal? Like, in so many ways, we cisgender women who have gone through pregnancy or potentially could go through pregnancy, we already knew this. And it is the reality that could happen to us or in some cases has happened to us when we had kids. 
So why is this such a revelation? And again, it's a revelation because in so many movies and so many TV shows, what have you, men who are the ones who are writing, creating, directing these things, and all too often they don't acknowledge that. And when they do acknowledge that, it's still done in a way where it's done through the lens of a male perspective, where you see more of the husband, boyfriend, lover's reaction to tragedy that happens rather than through the woman's. And I think in a way, that's what made this episode more interesting to some of us female viewers, or at least to this female viewer. I can't I can't speak and I'm not going to speak for all of you listeners who happen to be female, what you may have thought of this. But to me, I was one of the ones who was like, what is the big deal? I, I already knew that this is the reality. I mean, I already consider myself fortunate because I was born and I survived and my mom survived. And in some ways, it actually made me really think on a personal level, it really made me think about my grandmother, my mother's mother, because my grandmother had 10 children. She went into labor 10 times. And the crazy part is that aside from my mother, I have only ever known and met five of her siblings. And that's because four of them did not make it past childhood. And I won't lie, I got a bit teary-eyed what happened to Emma because it made me think of my grandmother and how this woman could go through pregnancy so many times and lose children so many times. And it made me think of my grandmother in the same way because she had 10 children and four of them didn't make it. And obviously my grandmother has passed away many years ago. So I was never able to really ask her about this because she passed away when I was still a kid. So as a kid, I would never have thought of these things. But, you know, as an adult, now that I think about it, I almost wonder how she coped with it. And I'm sure for some of you listeners, you know, whether it's you, the listener yourself, have experienced this or you had a mom or a sister or a grandma who was in a similar situation, this has happened to someone in your own family, whether you realize it or not. But statistically speaking, this has happened to somebody in your family. It really just makes you think more and appreciate more about the women who actually go through this. It really does. But, you know, I'm not going to go any further on that because that could lead to certain conversation topics that are not things that we cover on this show. So I'm not going to go there. But this was a very good episode and really sets up all the chaos that's about to happen through the rest of the series. The Rogue Prince was the second episode, and I just thought that this was a really good episode that did give Rhaenyra a bit of a spotlight to try to prove that she is worthy of being an heir to the throne. And yet you also see how she gets sidelined. And that is basically the rest of her life. She's always acknowledged as being the heir. And yet she gets sidelined all because she's a woman. And how many women out there don't know what that's like? I think the other interesting thing is that it also makes it very clear the relationship she has with Alicent and her uncle, because you can kind of get that there are certain things about her relationship with these two that are much deeper than you may initially realize. Like You kind of got hints that there is a very deep connection between her and her uncle, Damon. You really got to see more of it in here. 
you can already tell there's like a break between her and Allison with this episode. And in many ways, Allison and Rhaenyra's relationship will never recover after this because Allison hid something from Rhaenyra. And then ironically, Allison ends up getting angry at Rhaenyra later for hiding things from her. It's what I feel like is going to be a cycle of hypocrisy on the part of Allison. If you ask me which side I would root for, the Blacks or the Greens, I am going to tell you right now, I am rooting for the Blacks the entire time because just on personality alone, I think so many people who are on the Greens side of the conflict are like massive hypocrites. The third episode, second of his name. So I thought this was a really interesting episode where, again, you get more buildup of a relationship between Rhaenyra and Damon, despite the fact they are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from each other and do not interact in this entire episode. You have both of these characters basically end the episode with them being covered in blood because they were both in battle and dealt with an enemy of some sort. Now, Rhaenyra obviously is covered in blood because she killed a wild boar, and Damon gets covered in blood because he killed the crab feeder. But still, they managed to triumph over a conflict that they found themselves involved with, and they went into their battles in complete rage and frustration. Rhaenyra had been experiencing a lot of frustration over the fact that she's legally considered the heir and yet she's not treated as the heir because there's always pressure around her and her father to basically change the heir from her to Aegon and to have her be treated as no different from any other daughter that women in this world deal with. And then she takes it out on the boar. Damon is angry and frustrated on the fact that for three years at this point, he had been fighting in the Stepstones. He has not been able to defeat the Crab Feeder. And then he gets a letter from his brother who had basically been ignoring him all this time. After ignoring me all this time, now you have the audacity to try to send me help and make me feel like I am a loser. It just pisses him off, which is why he was so angry when he got that letter. And the interesting thing is, is that Matt does not speak through the entire battle sequence, like the entire last 10, 15 minutes of the episode when he goes out to fight the crab feeder. He does not say a single thing. Again, that just emphasizes how really good an actor Matt Smith is. So that's that. Episode four. Four, King of the Narrow Sea. Now, this one is a really interesting episode, and it's one of those episodes where you get a real hint at the conflict that is building in the series. You get Rhaenyra hiding things from Allison, which is in its own way, like I said before, an echo of episode two, where Allison was hiding things from Rhaenyra. You also get an escalation in Rhaenyra's relationship with Damon, where she almost lost her virginity to her uncle at a brothel. But of course, he runs off, leaving her in a very precarious situation. And then she ends up checking in her V-card with Sir Kristen, which of course just leads to complications that we see in the next episode. 
In this episode, you can see what leads up to the formation of the greens versus the blacks as the season progresses. And again, like I mentioned earlier, it just brings up my personal frustration with some of the characters on the green side with like, you guys get all preachy about being honorable and moral and this and that. And it's like, meanwhile, you're doing super underhanded things and you do the same crap that you accuse Rhaenyra, Damon, etc. of doing. I mean, it's like ridiculous utterly ridiculous. It's like, what moral standing do you honestly have? And trust me, I'm just going to keep on that vein as we keep going. But so episode five, we light the way the infamous wedding of Rhaenyra and Laenor, which in the tradition of Game of Thrones, no wedding ends without some bit of bloodshed. Yeah, we see Kristen killing Lenor's boyfriend at the feast for the wedding. It's one of those interesting deviations from the book a little bit because Kristen does kill Joffrey, but he does so at a tourney and not at a wedding reception. I guess the other interesting thing to point out was actually the title of the episode, We Light the Way. Now, admittedly, I was not overly familiar with everything about the High Towers, but what I didn't realize was that We Like the Way is actually the motto of House High Tower. So that should have been a clue to me as somebody familiar with the book lore that, yeah, this is a High Tower battle cry type of episode. Then we end up with episode six, The Princess and the Queen, which is a big time jump. And we see Rhaenyra has become a mom three times over. And we also see that Alicent herself has her own brood of kids. And it just develops into the tension between the Blacks and the Greens, even though they don't directly call the two factions that. You really got to see the struggle. And also you got to see something that was discussed as being speculation and rumor that Rhaenyra's boys are not really Lenor's kids. In this show, they basically confirmed that the rumors that her three boys are really fathered by Harwin Strong and not her husband. Which, again, I kind of feel like that may have been a factor when they casted the actors to play the members of House Valarian is the fact that, like, it should be more visually obvious that these three boys she had while she was married to Lane or are not his bio kids. It is unfortunate that, like, Rhaenyra ends up in this situation, and in a way, the show actually makes you sympathize with that choice. I mean, in terms of the way heredity of thrones and whatnot are, it's a terrible thing for you to do to be cuckolding your husband and having kids that are not his kids. But yet you kind of understand why she ended up in this situation, because if she's supposedly the heir to the throne, she is expected to have children. And the fact that she and Lenor couldn't have kids together, partially because of the fact he's gay, it becomes a real problem. And of course, she's going to get blamed for it because when does a man in this kind of situation ever get blamed for anything? It clearly must be the woman's fault, right? And yet, because she had to essentially use a sperm donor of sorts, She ends up getting hated on because of the fact that people have figured out just from obviously looking at the boys that they're not Lanors. 
in a way, it does make you really sympathize with her. We'll just say that. And yeah, in this episode, those members of the green faction, you really see some of that hypocrisy and moralizing coming out. That's just very insufferable to me, at least. So episode seven is called Driftmark. And honestly, I enjoy this episode as well. And the thing that I just concluded when I was watching that episode is the fact that you know, Viserys, back in episode four, you honestly should have just gotten over yourself and let Damon have his divorce so he could marry Rhaenyra like he wanted to. Because if you had let Damon and Rhaenyra marry each other, especially because they clearly have a strong relationship, a strong bond with each other, and it's turning into a real sexual romantic thing by that point. It would have saved a whole lot of trouble for everybody, and it would have prevented the insanity that is about to happen. But of course, that is not what Viserys did. Because of course, he had to have Rhaenyra marry Laenor to clean up a mess that he started by refusing to marry Lena. Which, granted, I get it, that Lena is significantly younger than Viserys, and that's even grosser and creepier than Viserys marrying Alicent. The thing was that due to Lena's age, they could have made the argument that we need to delay the wedding and the consummation and all that business for a few years until she's older, and therefore put the pressure off of him to, oh, you must immediately get married and have more kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That would have helped Rhaenyra as well in terms of being the heir and trying to get respect from people. But in so many ways, Viserys failed as a father to her and failed in other ways as a king in that perspective. But I will admit it is pretty entertaining, the scene where Aemon was able to claim Vagar, although the incident with the eye and the fight amongst the kids, it's like, it's kind of sad that had to happen because basically the conflict between Rhaenyra and Alicent kind of poisoned the next generation against each other. And we will see how that just destroys everything as time goes on. So episode eight is Lord of the Tides. Now, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Patty Considine playing Viserys, this really was a Viserys episode. This was really an episode where we got to, in some ways, better understand Viserys as a character. Pretty similar to how I felt personally connected in episode one with Emma. In this episode, I felt connected in a way to Viserys. Now, I'm not going to get into too many details because I want to protect people's privacy. But let's just say that dinner reminds me a lot about a situation happening, not in my immediate family, but within extended family. And again, I'm not going to get into all that, but it just makes me a bit sad because I too have a memory of a big family dinner I had with some people a few years back and things were happy. And then now things are not as fraught as it is with House Targaryen, but there is family conflict. And again, I'm not gonna get into details because it's not my business to discuss any further than that. But I completely sympathize with Viserys and his speech about he wants peace between the two different sides of his family and he wants the fighting to stop. And I get that. I really get that. The other bit that also was kind of personal to me, and I'm not gonna make this into a long story, the scene when Rhaenyra and Damon visit Viserys for the first time after not seeing him for a few years. 
that really moved me because it is pretty reminiscent of a cousin of mine. One of my cousins, I hadn't seen her in a few years. And then I found out she had colon cancer, stage four colon cancer. And for various reasons, she ended up living with me and my parents for what turned out to be like the last six months of her life until she had to go to the hospital and then go to hospice care towards the end. That scene in a lot of ways is very reminiscent of the first time I saw my cousin after not seeing her for a few years and seeing how much she physically changed because of the cancer and... I kind of got that. I totally get how sad and shocking it was to see how things had degenerated for this person. I'm sure it particularly bothered and hurt the two of them most because this is her father. This is his brother. Viserys is only a few years older than Damon. And yet when you look at the two, it's like Viserys looks like he's like 20, 30 years older than Damon. I mean, that's how terrible he looked when they went to see him. It's honestly very sad. It really moved me in a lot of ways watching that episode. And I will say that this episode will remain one of the top episodes of the entire series. I mean, there's going to be undoubtedly some really great episodes coming up in the next couple of seasons, but this one is going to remain one of the top ones. So, And then, of course, episode nine is The Green Council. This was also a pretty interesting episode where you got to look into the green faction of the conflict. To be quite blunt, I don't know how you can watch this episode and find yourself sympathizing or agreeing with this faction because, first off, Aegon didn't really have the desire to rule until he got the power trip thing at the coronation. He's clearly not capable of being king. If you thought Viserys was not the right person, the right personality to be an effective king, Aegon is even worse than that. He's even worse than his father, if you want to do a comparison. Aegon is just as a person, as an individual, he's just awful. He's a drunk. He's kind of a pervert. In the previous episode, you realize that he's basically a rapist because he totally took advantage of that one maid. And you have no idea how many other girls working in the household could have had a similar situation to that one girl. And you just don't know because it doesn't come up in the episodes you just don't know. So it's like, you want this kid to be the king? I mean, are you serious right now? And the fact that there was secretly a plot to usurp the throne by having Aegon instead of Rhaenyra, who was the acknowledged heir to the throne. I mean, seriously, it's like, how do you watch this episode and still find yourself rooting for the Greens afterwards? It's it's like they are so underhanded, so self-righteous. Some of them have the audacity to talk about like what's right and what's just and what's honorable. It's like you're doing some of the dirtiest tricks in the book to get what you want. And you have the audacity to say that, you know, that Rhaenyra is like out of control and especially with Damon as her husband. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous. I'm sorry. For those of you out there who are still pro-green, if you will, but I'm just going to say it right now, I'm going to be 
anti-green. I was anti-green when I read the books, and I am going to stay anti-green throughout the series. No matter what happens down the road as the story progresses, you will still never convince me that the green faction was in the right at any point. And I'm not going to argue that the black faction is perfect or any such thing. I definitely do not. And of course, the Black Queen is the final episode, and it has one of the most shocking things that happened. But of course, again, I already knew it was going to happen. I have to say this episode, if you weren't already sympathetic towards Rhaenyra, I'm sorry, but as kind of the opposite of the previous episode, I don't understand how you can watch this season finale episode and not walk away feeling sympathetic and kind of sorry for her. Because she loses her father, she loses an unborn baby, and she loses her second-born child, all in a span of a week. I mean, I don't know precisely the exact timeline that they're going off of, but you imagine that this is all happening within like a few days of each other. It's like a very short period of time that all of this death happened to her. You're expecting her to fully process all of this. And she's dealing with a coup because she's legally supposed to be the queen. Her half-brother has basically usurped the throne. And you're expecting her to come out of this as a reasonable person. She tries to be a reasonable person, but then the death of her son is just like the last straw for her. And quite frankly, I would say that for anybody, really anybody at all, that would be the last straw for them too. I guess my two observations, but they're related to each other. So one thing that does not come up in the episode, but is a thing mentioned in Fire and Blood, is that the baby that Rhaenyra lost is actually a girl. It was going to be her one and only daughter she has. And the baby was going to be named Visenya. Aemon's dragon, Vagar is the largest and the oldest of all the dragons that you will see in House of the Dragon. And she's actually a very prized dragon because she is one of the three original dragons used to conquer Westeros. So it was Vagar, Balerion, and Meraxes who were the three dragons that Aegon and his two sisters Visenya and Rhaenys used to conquer Westeros. By this point in time, Vagar is the only one of the three still alive. So you imagine that this is a very old dragon, and because she was used for conquering, she's fought plenty of battles over her lifetime. So this is a really experienced war beast you are talking about, okay? Aemond has the audacity to use this highly experienced, highly irritable war beast to essentially play chicken with. It's like, are you kidding me? Aemond, you are supposed to be the more responsible brother in comparison to Aegon, and yet you do something that probably a stereotypical teenage boy would think is a smart idea, which is to use a giant dragon to play chicken with, okay? He basically screws everything up for himself and for his family, and he essentially started the Dance of the Dragons by killing his nephew. 
what I thought was interesting is that the show's interpretation of this event, which is a thing that came up in Fire and Blood, of course, is that it has a very different explanation. Because in Fire and Blood, they basically say that, oh, Eamon was totally gunning for Lucerus as revenge for the eye slashing incident that we saw in episode seven. But what's interesting is that the way they interpret this incident in the show does kind of put into question the version that's in the book because, objectively speaking, the author of the book knows that this incident happened, but what really happened in detail is really down to Lucerus and Amond to know what really happened. And Amond was the one who came out of it. And as far as I know, nobody ever interviewed Amond to find out what happened. So the author of the book, he and some of the sources he used to write his historical treatise are making the assumption that the death of Lucerus was intentional. But what's interesting is the TV show kind of brings that into question because they portray it as the dragon riders basically lost control of their own dragons. And then it leads to a very tragic ending. And actually, as I think about it objectively, I think I prefer the TV show explanation. And I would not be surprised if George R. Martin, if you were to ask him, he may actually come out and say that what they did in the TV show was actually what really happened. It is a slight callback to Game of Thrones, just as much as it's a callback to earlier in the season, because in Danny's storyline in Game of Thrones, at various points, it has come up that Danny never fully has control over her dragons, especially Drogon, who turns out to be her dragon. Viserys himself, in an earlier episode literally said that it's an illusion that we ever truly control dragons. And then in this episode, you find out the hard way that it is true. Even though the dragons can accept a person as being the one who rides on them, or how much the dragon is going to listen to you as the rider, it's not guaranteed. Results will vary because what people don't always think about, and again, this comes up in the lore of Ice and Fire, is that dragons in many respects are not that different from people where they have personalities, they have things they like and they don't like, and they have preferences. They're just as much a person from that perspective as a human being is. Dragons can choose to listen or not listen to you when they feel like it. And in a funny way, Daenerys herself has also said in Game of Thrones, which is that a dragon is not a slave. And it's kind of true. Dragons are not these slavish creatures that will automatically obey you. They are just as capable of killing you as they are of listening to you. The fact that you have these younger characters riding on these dragons, which are capable of a lot of destruction and not fully appreciating or grasping the power and the responsibility connected to that power that they have by being the riders of these things. 
you know, they don't fully appreciate and it leads to very unfortunate situations. So the episode ends with war about to erupt in the worst possible way. A related observation I will mention is that, as I mentioned before, one of the previous riders of Vagar was Visenya when she helped her brother conquer Westeros. And as I mentioned before, the baby that Rhaenyra loses was supposed to be a girl named Visenya. So in a very twisted George R.R. R. Martin fashion, Visenya's dragon killed Visenya's brother. You are a twisted man, George R.R. R. Martin. You are a twisted man. So to close out this very long episode, I'm going to end this off with a couple of last thoughts. So it's already been announced by showrunner Ryan Condal in an interview that filming for season two is going to start at the beginning of 23, which means that in all likelihood, we are not going to get season two until 24. I mean, I suppose if they really pushed the production and the post-production work, they could hypothetically squeeze it out for late 23, but is that very likely? Not really, because in order to ensure that season two turns out to be a good season, well-produced, really good quality season two, you need to give it sufficient time to get everything done. Which means that if we viewers want to watch a season two that's just as good as season one, if not better, we just need to get over ourselves, collectively speaking, and just accept the fact that we're not going to get the show again until 24. And I guess my last observation for this episode is that for me, I feel like as tragic and as emotionally captivating as the original Game of Thrones series was, in a lot of ways, I actually felt this show is more captivating because in Game of Thrones, you're following a huge cast of characters with multiple storylines. Your attention gets divided up amongst the different characters and the different storylines. You have room to feel sympathetic or whatever towards those different characters. And especially when you have the Stark family, you really feel for the Stark family because they are what I describe as one of the most screwed over families in the Song of Ice and Fire series. But with House of the Dragon, you are primarily following this one family. They have connections with other families, but the driving storyline of the show is House Targaryen. And in a way, it's almost more tragic than Game of Thrones because you are basically watching the disintegration and collapse of a family. And in so many ways, if you're someone who comes from kind of a large family, whether it's like a large nuclear family or a large extended family where you're familiar with the different people in your extended family, you would completely understand what I'm getting at here. You are watching the implosion in so many ways of what should have been a strong, united family into into two branches that are at each other's throats trying to fight over a throne. And mixed into the politics of who is going to be the king or the queen sitting on the Iron Throne, you have people who have personal beefs with each other. It's genuinely really sad to me, honestly. And that's why I would argue that this show is kind of more tragic than Game of Thrones. 
Sorry to end it with kind of a downer, but it just had to be said. And I'm pretty sure some of you listeners probably feel the same way about it as I do. I'm going to end this episode now. And I'm afraid, dear listeners, our watch has begun. Countdown to season two. If you agree or disagree with anything I said in this episode, feel free to send us an email. We have our emails that you can contact us listed on our website at threefatesdecide.com. As long as you're polite, even if you totally disagree with anything I said in this episode, at least be polite about it. I don't need to get into another fan war online with people. I already got into enough fan war things over my personal opinion on Daenerys, so I just don't feel like getting into it with people who don't agree with anything I said in this episode. Just be polite about it if you do. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch us next time. And see what we're going to talk about. Because the three fates decide.